You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And then if you've got your Bibles, you can actually turn to 1 John. It was about this time last year that I began doing some research on um, STEM classes um, at the middle school and high school level. For those of you that aren't aware, uh, STEM is a movement, uh, a combination of different subjects together and trying to incorporate different disciplines together. And so within the uh, within the STEM component, you've got things uh, involving technology, engineering, mathematics, um, the sciences. And so all that together works together and they're using it to, to teach differently, to incorporate different projects together. And so wanting to make sure that our school doesn't fall behind Uh, what everyone else is doing, I began to research some different schools and began to look at some different websites from schools that advertised doing STEM. Um, And so I contacted a Christian school that was similar to to our size, similar to what we offer, and um, was just really impressed with what their website communicated about their STEM program. Called and, and tried to find out who to talk to, finally was connected with an individual, got his email address, emailed him and said, hey, I'm really impressed with what you guys are doing from a STEM standpoint. I said, I would love to bring me and a couple other people from our school to your school. They're far enough away to where we're not competing with each other. I said, I'd love to just come and see what you guys are doing. We want to do something similar at our school. Um, And I was shocked. He emailed me back and he said, "Um, I've got to be honest with you. What you're reading on the website does not match the level of what we're doing in our school. He said, we want to be... Uh, honestly perceived a certain way by our headmaster. And so what's actually on the website does not match what we are doing at our school. He said, now we're doing some stuff. He said, but it's not worth you coming to look at. You would be disappointed with the drive and what you actually found going on here. Um, And so I, I began to realize sometimes websites communicate inaccurately what is actually going on with that business or with that organization. Recently, I've been um, going through our website and making sure that it's updated, that the information is accurate, making sure the kids' class times are updated for what we're currently doing. And so I've just been working through meticulously each page. And I have to confess, recently when I was going through it, I was reading and, and, and looking and reflecting, and, and I walked away from our website thinking, man, that is an amazing uh, display of what a church is supposed to be in relationship to what's God's, what God's word says a church should be. But honestly walked away wondering how accurate are we reflecting what our website says that we want to be. Um, if you're like me, you don't look at our church website often. The information that's there is information that you already have. You don't need to know what time the church service starts. You don't need to know the age group of classes that we offer for our kids, you know those things, you're familiar with those things, so you're not regularly going to our website. And if we're not careful, we'll lose sight of what we're saying we're trying to be and what we're trying to do, and someone could read what's on the website and then come here and be completely disappointed with what they actually experience. And so what I want us to do, based on where we're at in our studies in Genesis, we're at a good point where we can pause for a couple of weeks, and so we're actually going to step away from Genesis between now and Easter, and I want us to reflect once again on who we are as a church, what we're desiring to be as a church, um, and to reinforce some of those things, especially for people that have come uh, more recently um, that weren't here when our church was originally founded. 
Um, I want us to all be on the same page as to what we want to be as a church based on what God's word has to say. And so we're going to deviate a little bit from Genesis and we're going to spend some time over the next couple of weeks looking at what we desire to be as a church, specifically what we desire to be known as when people come to our church. Um, And so I want us to spend some time reflecting upon that today. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 1 today. And I'm going to go ahead and give you our summary sentence. Um, The reputation of sovereign hope. uh, Specifically today, I want us to look at being known as a church that loves. Being known as a church that loves, specifically in some very intentional ways. We desire to be a church that is known for fellowship, accountability, discipline, and restoration resulting in the perseverance of our members. We desire to be a church that is known for fellowship, accountability, discipline, and restoration, resulting in the perseverance of our members. This past week with our C groups, we talked about, um, from James chapter 5, the wandering believer. The believer that begins to wander from the truth and the need to go and to rescue that individual back. Um, and the positives that surround that, uh, that when one is rescued back, the, the individual that did the rescuing can be commended and can be encouraged over the fact that a multitude of sins have been covered as a result of that. Um, and so as we were talking in our C group, we were relating how we're trying to do that within our church, with accountability groups, with C groups, how it necessitates that we know each other, that we know each other well enough to know when one is deviating from the truth and when they need to be called back and rescued back. Um, And so a lot of what we talked about on this past Wednesday is relevant to what we're discussing today. We desire to be a church that is known for fellowship, accountability, discipline, and restoration resulting in the perseverance of our members. Now, from that list right there, we want to primarily be known for the, the first end or the front end of that. We want to be known as a place of fellowship and accountability because that's when you're in right standing with Christ um, from a from a spiritual standpoint, fellowship is right. And we're being held accountable to stay in that fellowship. But as we discussed in our C group, James chapter five assures us that at times people will wander. I mean, so we're going to discuss as a church being known as a place of discipline that rescues people back and a place that restores people back as well. When wandering occurs, Um, because all of that working together is necessary if people are going to persevere. Okay, we've talked a lot in our C groups recently, it seems, about the perseverance of believers. Believers that are saved and how believers remain saved and stay saved until the very end. And how God uses individuals, the church, the teaching of the word, the Holy Spirit, to get us to the very end. Um, We want to be known as a church that is a good, positive environment where people can come and rest their souls here and know that we have established an environment that will allow somebody to persevere to the end. All right, 1 John chapter 1, and we're actually going to look at the whole chapter here. Um, It's not too lengthy. Um, It starts in verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. The life, talking about Jesus, was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you 
the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Okay, so we're going to pause right there. John, who is a disciple, is communicating that everything that's going to flow in this letter is coming from firsthand experience. That he has walked and talked with the Son of God. That he has experienced him, not just because people have told him that he's actually handled the Messiah in a sense. He's been there right with him. He's touched him. He's interacted with him. He's been with him on a daily basis. And so he says, what's about to flow from my letter is firsthand experience. I am, I am portraying to you, I am relaying to you the eternal life that was made manifest to us, that being Jesus Christ. Why is he doing this? We pick up where we paused. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, so John has a desire of fellowship. He desires fellowship not just with the disciples that have the same firsthand experience. He wants to increase that fellowship. Right. He doesn't want to keep it contained. He doesn't want it to be just me and my buddies who love Jesus and and we're faithfully following Jesus and and we're going to keep doing that. He wants to expand upon that fellowship. He says, I, I, I want to tell you about the Jesus that I've interacted with so that you, too, can have fellowship with us. OK. Um, and so in our notes, if you're keeping up with us, a church known for fellowship, specifically our relationship to each other as believers is ultimately rooted in our connection to Jesus Christ. Okay? John is saying our fellowship, the fellowship that I desire to have with you, is going to be based on our belief and understanding in Jesus. Not our agreement about hobbies. Not our agreement about how we're raising our kids. Not our agreement in the educational decisions that we're making. Right? Those are things that oftentimes form fellowship and reasons that we hang out with certain people outside of the church setting. But John says, I desire a different level of fellowship, a fellowship that is rooted and grounded and based on a relationship and a connection with Jesus Christ. And so he says, I want to share Christ with you so that you can then have a spiritual level of fellowship with me that is not available beyond a connection with Jesus Christ. Which also implies, number two, our relationship to each other will continue to grow as we faithfully communicate our experiences with Jesus Christ to each other. Okay, so John says our, our relationship has to be founded in our connection with Christ. But then as we faithfully communicate Christ to each other, that fellowship grows. He says, we've, we've seen it, we heard it, and we proclaim it also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with, with, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He has this desire for fellowship. He knows that it's rooted in Christ. And he knows that as they faithfully communicate Christ back and forth to each other, that that fellowship grows, that connection grows I desire for our church to have that. I desire for people to come to this church and to experience or at least to observe a spiritual level of fellowship taking place with our members 
that is rooted in Jesus Christ. And if they stay here long enough, they see our relationships with each other growing and thriving because of our communication of Christ to each other. Okay? Not because we're, we're uh, participating in hobbies together. Not because we're doing things that we enjoy together. But because of our love for Christ, our fellowship is rooted in it. And our fellowship grows and thrives and deepens with each other because of our relating of Jesus back and forth to each other. This is what Christ is doing in my life. I want to share it with you. I want to hear what Christ is doing in your life. I want to hear of the growth and the the desire that you have to know him more. I want to share with you how I'm coming to know him more. Our relationship, our fellowship being rooted in that relationship with Jesus Christ. But John goes on to communicate further about fellowship. In verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The third point John makes, our relationship to each other can only be maintained as we make personal decisions to fight sin and walk in obedience. Okay, so John is communicating to us what fellowship looks like in the life of a church, in the life of believers. That it's rooted in Christ, it's maintained and, uh, and furthered through a communication of Christ back and forth with each other. And then it's maintained overall by personal decisions to fight sin and to walk in obedience. Because John says, if, if we start to deviate from the truth and we start to walk in darkness, then we don't have fellowship. If we say we have fellowship while we're in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, notice it says we have fellowship with one another. And so in order for our fellowship to be maintained together as a church, it necessitates us making personal decisions to fight sin and to walk in obedience. Now, in no way should anybody ever come to Sovereign Hope and expect to find perfect believers. John removes that notion by saying... Lest you think that I'm saying you should be walking in perfect obedience, that's not the case. Because there ought to be sin that's being recognized. There ought to be sin that's being confessed. And if you think there's not, then you're deceived as well. So there ought to be a perception, people coming into our church, they see a level of fellowship that's tied to Christ. They see a level of fellowship, if they stay long enough, that's continuing to grow and to deepen. The relationships here grow and deepen with each other because of Christ and because of the love for Christ that we share with each other. And then they should also see that our relationships with each other is maintained because of the similar decisions that we're making. That we're striving to make obedient choices and decisions. And when sinful, uh, sinful things enter into our life, they're seeing faithful confession and they're also seeing faithful forgiveness from us as well. It's a place where you're going to see people make mistakes. 
but hopefully we are a place where people can come and see how to handle mistakes appropriately, to see that confession, to see that forgiveness, to see that fellowship be maintained because of it. So there's some implications that I think flow out of 1 John here. First of all, our gatherings must be Christ-centered. Our gatherings must be Christ-centered, and our decisions must be biblically-based. If we're a church that's known for the love that we have for each other, it's going to have to be based off of our gatherings, whether it's Sunday mornings, whether it's small groups, whether it's accountability groups, whether it's the fun things that we do throughout the year with our events, that there's a Christ-centeredness to those gatherings, that people see our love for Christ and they see our relationships being tied to that primarily. But then also within our church, they're seeing decisions that are being made that are biblically based decisions to follow obediently. And when we deviate from that obedience, decisions to confess, to repent and to forgive. That's the type of fellowship that John's describing here, the type of fellowship that I desire for our church to be known as for someone to visit here, to decide to join here. I want them to experience this type of fellowship that's being described, a fellowship rooted in Christ Growing and thriving because of Christ and because of our sharing of Christ with each other. In in an environment where personal decisions are being made to fight sin and to walk in obedience. So that's the ideal setting, the ideal scenario. People loving Jesus and people loving each other because of their love for Jesus. Fighting sin, walking obedience. But in order for that to happen, we also need to be known for our accountability within our church. If you want to flip now over to Hebrews chapter 3, this is a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, um, or maybe several weeks ago, in preparation for um, C groups. Hebrews chapter 3. So the ideal setting, the ideal picture, the ideal perspective is that believers are in fellowship with each other because of Jesus. They're loving each other because of their love for Jesus. They're fighting sin and making personal decisions to obey Jesus. But in order for that idealistic environment to happen, it necessitates accountability. And Hebrews 3 gives us that perspective. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's a couple of things that I believe flow out of this passage that are relevant for our church and being known as a place for accountability. First of all, each believer should understand their own need for the active presence of other believers in their life. Each believer, every member of our church, has to understand that they have a need for the active presence of other believers in their life. Is anybody exempt from this? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's any exemptions made in Scripture that there would ever be an individual who doesn't need other believers speaking truth to their life. I think anytime we see uh, people that were following faithfully in the New Testament that start to fall off, they weren't people that would have been expected to do so. The author of Hebrews here is saying that we should take care. 
lest there be any type of evil, unbelieving heart that springs up inside of us that would lead us to fall away. Instead, we should exhort one another every day so that none of us is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's necessary for our perseverance. I'm putting my notes. We're not immune from the attacks of sin. And we all know people, we all know people that have wandered from the faith and maybe are still in a state of wandering that have yet to prove the validity of their faith because they've yet to come back that we would have never expected to wander in the way that they've wandered. We all know individuals like that. A lot of us know pastors, pastors of churches who wandered from the faith, who are no longer doing what they were doing 10 years ago, who are no longer living the things that they were preaching 10 years ago. Okay, so nobody's exempt from needing other people speaking truth into their life. Okay, so you don't get to opt out and say, you know what, uh, Sunday mornings work good for me, but the rest of the week, I just, I don't have time to interact with church members, to have them interacting with me. I don't have time to build that into my schedule. You don't get to exempt yourself from it. Because let me tell you, coming on a Sunday morning is not going to be sufficient for someone to know that wandering is happening in your heart and that a hardening is setting into your heart regarding sin. It's just not sufficient time for anybody to get to know you well enough to know to come after you based on a Sunday morning experience. Okay? Most of us come in right before the service is starting, and most of us are heading out because we've got things to do after that. And that's, that's understandable. That's what Sunday schedules look like. That's why we've built in so many other times and ways for you to connect throughout the week, throughout the month, to ensure hardening towards sin doesn't set in. That you at least have it available to you to take advantage of opportunities and environments that would protect you from having your heart hardened to sin. The author of Hebrews says, take care, be intentional with it, lest this happen to you. It always happens to people we don't expect it to happen to. Take care lest it happen to you. So it starts with every believer, every member of our church, understanding their need for active presence of other believers in their life. And then secondly, it continues with each believer should understand that their active presence is needed in the life of other believers, right? So it's not just that you come to our church or come to any church so that your needs can be met. Right? It's not you grumbling and complaining that your accountability group or your C group isn't working the way that it's supposed to because it's not meeting your needs. Because there's a twofold effect here. Each believer has to understand that their active presence is needed in the life of other believers. So it's not just that you need people in your life. The flip side is that other people need you in their life. You're absolutely crucial, absolutely important to this church. Because your presence is needed in the life of other believers here. If we're going to persevere to the end, it's not going to happen absent from other believers being active in our life. And other believers are not going to persevere to the end unless they have believers active in their life. And God's called you to be a part of that active presence. Author of Hebrews says, take care lest this happen to you. Exhort one another every day and so there's a there's a two pers- twofold perspective there that he's portraying he says don't let this happen to you you need to have people exhorting you daily but you also need to be the individual that's exhorting others daily why for we've come to share in christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end the necessity of perseverance 
The perseverance of others is contingent on the exhortation of other believers. That's the way God has designed it. Okay? God has not designed it to where someone gets saved, gets the Holy Spirit, and they automatically make it to the end. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that if someone comes to faith in Christ and they are sealed with the Holy Spirit, they will persevere to the end and they will stand in glory when Christ returns. They will do it because other believers will have pushed them in that direction the rest of their life. I believe the way that God ensures that people persevere is that he uses other individuals and people to push people to perseverance. In the same way, I believe when Jesus comes back, there will be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue ready to represent and to worship him. And there will be those people there because individuals will have gone and shared the word of God with them and they will have been saved. Okay? God doesn't execute his plans absent from human involvement. And, and I don't know why. He has no rhyme or reason for why he would do this beyond the fact that he, is, he has designed it to where his plans are accomplished by using human beings. He doesn't have to do it that way. And glory to him that he would choose to use us for any of his plans or purposes. But what we see in scripture is that people are there worshiping forever in revelation from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Because people answered the Great Commission in Matthew 28 when Jesus said, I'm empowering you, I'm going to go with you, and we are going to make disciples to the ends of the world. There will be people that will be represented in heaven that have persevered to the end because God used people to help them fight sin. And when they were prone to wander, people rescued them back. All right, And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. But it starts with us seeing that we need other believers in our life. And we have to see that we are also needed in the lives of other believers. Okay? Um, it's the regular, normal, ordinary means of how God changes us. He uses other people. We see that all in the New Testament. The ESV study Bible says connection with the community of faith, being a church, connection with the local church essentially, is essential for both progress in sanctification and perseverance in the faith. Being connected with a solid body of believers is necessary if we're going to grow in holiness and if we're going to stay committed to the very end. We've talked before here at our church that the purpose of our accountability, our accountability groups, is to attack the why as much as the what in our fight against sin. In James chapter 5, we talked uh, Wednesdays in our C groups, wandering from the truth. We said in our C groups, we wander from the truth in two ways, either from a uh, belief standpoint we allow false doctrine to enter into our minds and we deviate from the truth from a theological standpoint or we do so from a behavior standpoint. It's either belief or action that we wander from the truth. And so our accountability groups and what we've preached to you guys and, and what we long for and desire as elders to see in our accountability groups is an environment where we're not uh, only concerned with the actions of people. We're concerned about what people are believing that would lead to those actions. Accountability is meant to address the why we do things as much as the what we do, all right? And so it's meant to be an environment where we're able to share and to talk and to discuss with the goal being to live in the light. John talks about this, walking in the light. Our accountability groups are a way for our members to come into the light monthly at a minimum with other believers and say, here's what I've been up to. We expose every attempt of our flesh to harbor sin in the darkness. Our accountability groups are meant to be a, a conscious decision 
to gather with other believers and to turn on the light of our life and say, here's what's been going on. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, right? John says, we're telling you about Jesus and that's what our fellowship should be rooted in. And so, you know, what we desire is that our accountability groups end up being a time where we're just talking about what Jesus is doing in our life. But there's times when we have to say, here's where I deviated from those beliefs and truths this month. Here's some things that I've allowed to enter into my life. Here's some things that I'm struggling with. Here's some things that I'm having to fight and I need your help with. The goal is to come into the light and to not harbor anything in the darkness. To take care lest there be any hardening of sin in our life. Some implications that I think flow from this. We must faithfully meet together. And we must intentionally encourage each other. Hebrews chapter 10 echoes a lot of this. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our accountability groups are meant to be a time of encouragement. We've talked before about Uh, The author of Hebrews here saying that we are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works that for me to really be a contributor to my accountability group to really do what I'm called to do to really participate as we're talking about here to help somebody with exhortation. It means me taking some intentional effort to figure out how do I stir you up to good works? How do I stir you up to obedience? And that takes relationship building, relationship building that is built on Jesus Christ, not hobbies and interests. Right. So let me specify, too. It's also relationship building that's based on uh, Jesus Christ, not age. Okay, that's why we can have young, younger individuals and older individuals in our accountability groups. And it shouldn't it shouldn't really matter. Okay, Um, in fact, it should be uh, preferred. Titus two, you know, older and younger coming together. So it should really be preferred. So it doesn't matter if if one has a totally different job than another. It doesn't matter if some have kids and some don't have kids. It doesn't matter if some are married and some aren't married. Our relationship building is built on Christ. Okay, That's what John talks about. That's where our fellowship comes from. And we faithfully meet together with the purpose of encouraging each other and stirring each other up. But it means me trying to figure out how you tick and how you work and knowing how to talk to you and knowing how to encourage you. And that's not easy. So, it, so it's not a program where you can just say, okay, Wednesdays at 7 o'clock, we show up for accountability, and it's just going to happen. I'm going to go and be an encouragement, and I'm going to go and receive encouragement. You're not if people aren't being intentional to figure out how to stir each other up to good works. You're going to go, and you're going to stare each other and drink coffee or eat food and, and say, when, when's this over? i got things to do. i got work to do. I've got my family to see. It's not going to be a profitable experience, okay? It means faithfully meeting together, which means carving out time in our schedules to do it, but then also coming with intentional purpose to encourage each other. And I don't know how many of us give that type of effort to it. We've been doing accountability groups for several years now. I don't know how many of you have progressed to the point where you're saying, 
how am I going to be a strong contributor to the discussion tonight? Not just sharing what's going on with me. How am I going to hear what's going on with other people? And how am I going to stir them up to good works? Because let me go back to tell you, our website says we do this. Our website says this is available. You come to our church, you're going to have accountability made available to you. You're going to be placed into an accountability group where people are ready to receive you and love you and hold you to the things that you profess to believe until Jesus comes back. I don't want to be like the guy at the Christian school that says, hey, our headmaster put that on the website. We're not really doing it. I don't want you to have to sit in an accountability group and say, man, the pastor must have wrote the website because it's not really what I'm experiencing when I come to this church. I don't want us to be guilty of that. A church known for fellowship, a church known for uh, accountability, but also a church known for discipline. Last thing I was going to say about our accountability groups, we're we're called to meet. This is what we kind of designed it to be. A place of meeting, a place of confession, a place of encouragement, and a place of prayer. A place of, of meeting, confession, encouragement, and prayer. And then that leads us into a church known for discipline. Two passages I want to draw our attention to are Matthew 18 and James 5, which we looked at in our C groups. But before we do that, um, a couple of quotes that I want to give you here. John MacArthur says, The single greatest contributor to the influence and the strength and the growth of our church has been church discipline. I believe that ignoring church discipline is the most visible and disastrous failure of the church in our time because what it conveys is we aren't really concerned about sin. All right, Jonathan Edwards goes on to say, if you tolerate visible wickedness in your members, you will greatly dishonor God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the religion which you profess, the church in general, and yourselves in particular. As those members of the church who practice wickedness bring dishonor upon the whole body, so do those who tolerate them in it. If strict discipline and thereby strict moral laws are maintained in the church, it would be one of the most powerful means of conviction and conversion towards those who are without. All right. Matthew chapter 18. Let's turn our attention there. We'll start in verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. All right. First off. I hope this slide's right. Yep. 
Discipline begins with an individual taking personal measures to keep their life free from sin. Okay. What, and, and I've taught on church discipline before, and what, what I always have to feel like I have to clarify up front, church discipline, if you were to write this on a piece of paper, does not equal, so you put church discipline with the equal sign and a slash through it, does not equal kicking people out of the church. Okay, that's what people normally think of when they hear church discipline. Does your church practice church discipline? Yes. Oh, so you guys kick people out of the church. Okay, that's not what church discipline as a whole means. Okay. What church discipline means is taking sin seriously and not tolerating it both personally and corporately. Okay? It means that we're going to take measures, whatever measures needed according to scripture, to make sure that our church remains pure. And it starts with individuals making personal decisions to keep their life free from sin. Before he ever gets into individuals confronting people about sin, notice Jesus says, The individual has personal responsibility to cut out every measure in his life that would lead to sin. If he can't control certain parts of his body, he'd be better off cutting them off than to engage in that type of activity. So it starts with an individual taking personal responsibility for his actions before he ever entertains the idea of somebody coming and confronting another individual. We talked about this in our C groups with James 5, and we're going to mention that passage here in a second. Before we ever go to an individual... That individual had a personal responsibility to address sin in their own life. He goes on to talk about, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The second thing that plays out here is discipline continues with close friends pursuing an individual that wanders with the goal of the least amount of people knowing. See, the goal is not to spread rumors and gossip within the church about who's doing what and that they might get kicked out of the church. The goal within our accountability groups is that individuals are fighting sin. And when they need help, they're, they're soliciting that help from people that they know within our church. But then when they ignore the exhortation and they begin to wander into sin, that one individual, and if needed, two or three more individuals are speaking into their life and calling them to repentance. And Jesus says, if that happens, nobody else needs to know about it. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he listens to you, you don't need to go and tell anybody that so-and-so was doing this and I had to call him to repentance. Nobody else has to know. There's been times where we've had to bring information to you as a church. There's been other times when we have not had to. That that it was stopped, that, that repentance happened in the life of that individual. They turned back to the light instead of going into the path of darkness. And why is this so important? Because John says, if one of our church members goes into 
disobedience and darkness, then we lose fellowship with them. John says, it's all about the fellowship. I want you in fellowship with me. I want you to know Jesus, the Jesus that I'm following. And if you deviate from that, then we don't have fellowship anymore. And so John says, I want to I call you to repentance, call you to confession. Don't think that you're without sin. You've definitely got sin. Confess it. Stay in the light. And Jesus has the same mindset here. John learned it from Jesus. Jesus is teaching here. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's where number three comes in. Discipline culminates with the entire church body taking responsibility for the actions of one. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's meant to lead to confession and forgiveness. Now, why is this important? Because Adam McLeod and Tyson Moore and myself sit down with every single individual that joins our church. And in the midst of meeting with Adam McLeod and Tyson Moore and myself, all three of us, at some point, I'm sure, I know at least once, if not all three times, we discuss that when you join our church, you get this type of protection. You can come here and know without a doubt that if you start to wander and the the, the deceptions of Satan set into your heart, that you have people here that will come and rescue you. See, see the, 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 it's not a fear factor. It's not, if you start messing up and you're here at Sovereign Hope, you will get called out and get called out loudly. That, that's not what it is, okay? I've told you before, as, as, a, as the son of a pastor who is no longer pastoring, I need to be in a church. I'm not exempt. I need to be in a church where I know people will speak truth to me if I wander. Because I'm not exempt from wandering. It's not, it's not completely impossible for me to deviate and to go off on a, on a theological tangent that is not consistent with Scripture. It's also not uh, impossible for me to wander in my behavior and to do something that would even disqualify me from the ministry. What will save me from a multitude of sins is me being in a position where people will come and bring me back from my wandering. I need to be in a church where I can trust that people will do this for me. Every single person that joins our church ought to be able to come and know the same will be true for them. Some examples of discipline that happened in Scripture. Uh, If you want to jot some of these passages down, this isn't something that that we've created. Acts chapter 5, God solicits discipline to Ananias and Sapphira. Here's two individuals at a time when the church was being unified around Christ and The purposes of Christ, people are selling things and giving it to the church so that it can be used for all kinds of purposes, okay? Which wouldn't be too uncommon from what we're asking you guys to do in regards to Uganda, okay? Something that would be very similar. We've asked everybody to to commit to give $1,000 if you're capable so that we can send people to Uganda. If you can't give $1,000, we've asked you to give as much as you can and to communicate that with us. It would be like someone selling something and saying, here's all the money that I made from it. I want to give it to the church and to give it to the cause of Uganda, but them to have withheld some of that money. 
right? We haven't asked any of you to sell anything personally and to give specific amounts to the church of what you've made. The same was true for Ananias and Sapphira. They were following suit with what other people were doing, but in order to gain an edge, in order to gain a, um, a sense of pride within other people's minds, they lie about how much they give. God strikes them dead to alleviate that type of thing from continuing at that time. Galatians chapter 2 Paul and Peter are the champions of spreading the gospel at that time. And Peter has been introduced to the fact that Gentiles are being included in this. He got a special vision from God, meets up with Cornelius and gets convicted about the fact that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Now, Paul has to call him out because Peter is not following suit with what he's preaching. And he's only eating with the Jews when Paul shows up. And so Paul has to address it and Paul has to call him out. Um. 1 Corinthians 5, the church was tolerating sexual immorality within the church. They were allowing someone to be with an individual that was not their husband or wife. It was a, uh, an individual that was a family member. And so even from the outside looking in, it was behavior that even the Gentiles wouldn't engage in. Paul calls it out. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18 through 20, Paul goes against false teachers and calls it out. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. The church is to respond to disobedience with discipline. In Titus 3.10, the church is to respond to anybody that would seek to uh, sow discords of disunity within the body. These are examples of when people had to fight sin and it moved beyond an individual thing. It moved to more of a bigger scale type thing. The goal was always confession and forgiveness, though. Confession and forgiveness is seen in Galatians 6.1. We're going to come back to this passage in just in just a second. But um, the purpose of church discipline, again, not to kick people out of the church, but to generate confession and forgiveness. Hopefully on a scale that never goes past one on one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The goal is confession. The goal is protection. First Timothy Chapter 5, verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, not people who mess up sometimes, people who are dug in that will not stop sinning. Those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. See, we don't want anybody, especially with sins that have become known, to think that the church will tolerate it so that our kids grow up thinking this is okay, this is tolerable, this is acceptable. Paul says we address these things so that nobody gets the wrong impression that these things are okay, that these things are allowed. The goal of discipline is restoration, Second Tim, or Second Thessalonians 3.15. Um, it says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Even when someone gets removed from the fellowship, people are supposed to intentionally continue to go to that individual and to warn him as a brother. Some implications that flow from these passages. And let's go, let me go to James uh, chapter five real quick. This is the passage we looked at in C groups this past week. James chapter five. The last uh, two verses, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover 
a multitude of sins. Implications here. Number one, we should expect people to wander from time to time if instructions have been given about their restoration. See, sometimes I forget this. Sometimes I I get so ingrained into thinking that uh, if you're a Christian, you obey. If you're a Christian, you love. First John talks about the test. And, you, and so if you're really a Christian, you persevere. If you're really a Christian, you obey. We should expect people to wander, though. Sometimes we, we, we want to, to move so far away from the idea of backsliding. Well, Christians don't backslide. They're, they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. They persevere. These passages are talking about people wandering and needing to be brought back. We should expect people to wander from time to time if instructions have been given about their restoration. It shouldn't blow our minds if somebody is sitting in our church membership for years professing to know Christ and all of a sudden start to wander and deviate from the truth. That shouldn't shock us because we've been given steps to get them back. Jesus and the New Testament writers expected that there would be people that needed to be rescued. We said in our group on Wednesday, the sooner we can address the issues to bring someone back, the more likely we are to succeed. See, if I can get to somebody quicker rather than later, if it's a theological issue, I can bring them back to the truth faster if I attack it quicker. If I wait and see how it plays out, someone gets more and more ingrained in those theological falsehoods, it's harder to rescue them back. I need to attack behavior that starts to deviate from the norm of Christianity because if it becomes a real habit that becomes ingrained in that person's uh, behavior, it's hard to rescue them back. So the sooner we can address the issues to bring someone back, the better we are in having success with them. People can wander in the area of belief and action. We talked about that. Um, we have to resolve. We have to involve ourselves in the lives of others intentionally to notice the beginning stages of wandering. We have to be intentional in our efforts to bring someone back active, not passive. We asked this question in our group. Um, what does it mean for someone to wander or what does it look like for someone to wander? Somebody that's not in my group. Um, what were some of the answers that were shared? What does it look like for somebody to wander? Or what does it mean for somebody to wander? Any thoughts that you guys came up with in your group? Any thoughts on what it means or what it looks like to wander? Because if we're, if we're to expect that people will, we need to know what it looks like so we know to go get them. Okay, so the level of participation that you see, the withdrawing maybe from believers um, would be an indicator. And then conversations that we're having, a lack of spiritual content to those conversations someone not being um, as apt to talk maybe as they would uh, what we talked about in our group is um, I, I compared it to how we handle um, concussions in football there's a test that you can take that shows what that individual's normal brain activity is supposed to look like and it's different for everybody so there's not this is what it's supposed to look like and if it looks different then you have a concussion there's what they call this type of test that that determines what they look like before they ever get hit, before they ever have a concussion. Then, if we suspect a concussion, we compare brain activity to what it is currently after the hit to what it's supposed to look like, and then they don't come back until it matches what it looked like prior to the hit. Okay? So what we talked about in our group is that in order to know when someone is wandering, we can't compare it to Jesus because none of us have ever reached Jesus' status, right? So all of us look like we're wandering when we look at our lives. 
but we're all progressing in sanctification and we're all at different levels and that looks different for all of us. And so what we talked about is that you have to intentionally know people in our church well enough to know what normal looks like for them right now. This is where this person's at in their sanctification. So I'm going to expect a drop off in what the ideal behavior or the ideal belief is in some of these things because that's just who they are and where they're at right now and it's a work in progress and the Holy Spirit's conforming them to Jesus. They're not wandering, they're just being sanctified. But if we know what somebody's norm looks like, we can then determine when they start to wander. Okay, so there may be an individual who is battling the idea of withdrawing already. They're one that's not at everything that we do. It's a, it's a, a fight to put themselves around believers because they're more, uh, they're more withdrawn by nature right now. They don't put themselves around believers a lot, okay? But if they stop being around us, what's normal for them, then that may be wandering for them, okay? So we talked about knowing people in our church so well that we're able to determine when they start to deviate from what's normal for them. Not a set standard that everybody's supposed to live up to, but me knowing individuals in my small group, me knowing uh, Ben well enough to know when he's not right. And I'm kind of at a point now where I know when Ben is not where he needs to be. When he's discouraged or when he's struggling, oftentimes I know as soon as he comes in to, to meet with us for accountability, whether Ben has been encouraged recently or discouraged. Because I know what normal looks like for him, and I know what it looks like for him to deviate from that. But that takes intentional effort for us to know each other and to fellowship with each other and for it to be rooted in Christ for us to know when someone starts to wander. Okay, We should expect that people are going to wander, and we should attack it quickly, not being passive but active. All right, And then the last thing we're going to cover real quick, a church known for restoration. Okay, So we're about fellowship. We're about holding each other accountable so that we keep that fellowship. When we start to wander and put uh, potential violation to that fellowship, we want to discipline it. We want to attack it as, as few people as possible getting involved with it so that, so that people don't have to know what they don't need to know. Okay, And then when someone confesses, when someone sees the light and wants to come back from wandering, we restore them. Galatians chapter 6. Paul gives instructions about what that looks like. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Believers are responsible to participate in the healing process of those who have fallen into sin. Okay? We're not just permitted to call people out for their sin and to address it. Okay? we have to also be a part of the healing process, okay? So absolutely, I'm friends with somebody here in this church. They're in my accountability group. I see that their norm is no longer what they're doing. They've deviated. They've wandered from the truth. I'm going to go to them in love and in gentleness, as Paul talks about, and try to restore them back, try to rescue them back, okay? If I'm successful, I gain my brother, Jesus says, okay? But confessing and saying, you're right, I have wandered, doesn't automatically mean the problem is fixed now, okay? All it means is that I realize in the same way you do that I've wandered. I need to get back though, okay? Like I, I've put myself in a position that maybe it's not just a matter of saying, yep, I'm guilty, now it's all fixed, okay? So Paul says we come alongside those people and we help in the healing process. Number two got skipped. 
we'll verbally give you number two. Believers are to help develop a plan that will serve and protect the individual. Believers are to help develop a plan that will serve and protect the individual. All right, I'm, I'm involved in, in something right now within our church where we have developed a plan to help this individual be restored, okay? This individual recognizes what I've done is wrong. This individual also is saying, I can't get back on my own, okay? And so we've developed a very intentional plan, really a plan that, that uh, involves exhortation daily to help bring restoration, Okay? Because we're following, as best we know how, what Paul is saying in Galatians. That we have a responsibility not just to say that this is wrong, but to show the path back to the light and say, come this way, come this way, come this way, and let me develop a plan that will help restore you to that spot. Number three, believers are called to mend and to repair, to do everything we can to ease the burden of temptation. We've talked about this before. The language there is, uh, is uh, the language that we would use for a cast or a splint. Okay, when something's broken, you have to put it back together and you have to protect it and to guard it. Okay, so the picture there is that we serve as a cast or a splint to help somebody that's been broken. And then once they've been healed, that plan can be removed and you're back to 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 what you are capable of doing on your own without that extra help. Okay, that's the picture going on there in Galatians. All right, so that leads us to a couple of points of application, questions that I want to leave you with. Because again, I don't want to have this on our church website and it not be consistent with what we're fighting for here off the website. I want to be able to confidently tell people, this is what you will find when you come to our church. First of all, are you doing your part to help create this type of environment at Sovereign Hope Church? Okay. Doesn't matter if there's other people that you could give me a list of that aren't doing their part. Are you doing your part to pursue fellowship here at this church? Are you doing your part to be hospitable with your home or your living situation where you're inviting people to your house based on the love that you both share for Jesus Christ? Doesn't matter how many people aren't doing it. Are you doing it? Okay. Are you intentionally creating this type of environment here at our church? Are you creating the fellowship environment, the accountability environment? Are you, as tough as it is, participating in the discipline part? When you see someone that you're close to that's wandering, are you calling them back? Secondly, have you identified people in this church that you desire to pursue you if you begin to wander? If you weren't with us on Wednesday nights, or this past Wednesday night, our small group leaders passed out our church discipline cards once again. For those of you that have been with us since the very beginning, way back in the Freeman Sasser, you filled out an accountability card that says, if I ever wander from the faith, if you guys are ever concerned about me as elders, these are the people you should send my way. Okay, Trying to take what Matthew 18 says, send one individual, send a couple of individuals. We want to know as elders who those individuals are that you will most likely listen to. All right, And going back through the list that I have on file, what we found is a lot of people wrote down people that aren't here anymore, <laughs> uh, people that have moved away. And so uh, Jason and Trish Evans, as much as they love us, probably aren't making the drive from Savannah to come rescue anybody right now at this point. Um, and so we want to update that. And so if you weren't with us Wednesday, 
please see your small group leader so that they can give you that card. We want to keep that on file. We let the people that you write down know that you wrote them down so they know that you value them that way. But I would encourage you to identify people in this church that you would want to come get you if you wandered. And then third, have you involved yourself in the lives of others where people here would desire you to come get them? Okay? Are you the type of person that somebody would want to write down on their card? And if not, why? Maybe it's your lack of involvement or your lack of presence here that would say, I don't want that person to come because I'm not sure that they would come. See, if, if, I, if I put myself in a place where I'm showing that I am heavily involved and heavily committed to the fellowship of this church and growing that fellowship, then I'm the type of person that I would hope people would want to come get them because they see that commitment level. Okay, so I want, I want to leave you with these three questions today. Are you doing your part to help create this type of environment? The environment that John talks about in 1 John. This thriving environment of fellowship where people are making personal decisions to do the right thing and to say no to the wrong thing. Have you identified people in this church that you want to come get you if you wander? Because remember, Hebrews says, take care that it doesn't happen to you. And we should expect that it'll happen because we're given plans for restoration. So who do you want to be a part of your restoration if you happen to be the one that it happens to? And have you involved yourself in the lives of others where people here would desire your pursuit of them? All right. This is the first in, in, a, in a series of things that I desire our church to be known as because it's things that we've already said we want to be known as. Okay? You're not going to hear anything new between now and Easter. You're going to hear our website between now and Easter. The difficulty is, is that on our website, we've got a statement of faith. We've got a, a list of values. We've got mission statements. And so I'm trying to take all that data and say, here it is. It's going to be simplified for you. This is what we are to be striving for as a church because this is what we say on our website that we are as a church. And I want us to be as consistent as possible. This isn't something that we came up with as elders. This is what we read in Scripture and see that the church is supposed to be. And it's a matter of taking it, mining it out of Scripture, putting it on paper so that we can see it in simplified form. This is what we're shooting for. This is what we've got to be if we're going to be faithful to what God's called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the instructions that you've given us in Scripture about what true Christian fellowship looks like. God, I think that so many in our culture desire this. And I think so many in our culture are seeing an absence of this when they go to church. And Father, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we're deficient in living up to what these verses and these passages call us to be. So in no way are we better than any other church in this area. We're simply acknowledging, God, that we read these things in Scripture and we know that we are supposed to be these things. And so we are, we are calling out to you today to do the necessary work in our hearts so that we can work together as church members here to create this type of environment. Father, I pray that we would be a place that is rooted in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that when people come and visit our church, we can echo the same things that John says. We desire for them to be in fellowship with us. Based on the work that Christ is doing in our lives. 
And Father, I pray that we'd be a place that can, that can create a, uh, an environment of accountability that would hold us to that fellowship and that we would be so invested in each other's lives that, that if we were to wander and to stray, that we could create an environment of discipline that would call us to confession and repentance and restoration. God, help us to all see that we play an individual part in this, that nobody is um, immune from needing this and nobody is exempt from contributing to this, that it takes all of us working together as the body of Christ to create this type of environment. Father, we desire it. We desire it for your glory and not our own glory. We desire it so that people will come to know you and be drawn to you through how we're living. And so, Father, we pray that in the coming weeks as we examine what your word calls us to be known for as a church, that we would yield to your word, that we would hear it, that we would do it, and that we would personally examine how we can contribute. Pray that you would uh, encourage us as we leave today, as we face another week, um, God, that we would do so together, that we would not simply experience a Sunday gathering and bounce from Sunday gathering to Sunday gathering. But instead, Father, I pray that we would all embrace the truth that you've communicated, that for us to persevere, it means us doing this together. So help us to live that way this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.